0: Holy Spirit, we're here because we need to encounter you this morning, and one of the ways we encounter you is through the word that you inspired to be written. But God, as we open it, we just confess that we need the Spirit's help to rightly understand it and to obey it, to live in light of it. And so, Holy Spirit, would you help me as a preacher? Would you speak through me or in spite of me, whatever you need to do? Would you help every single person sitting in this room and listening whenever they listen to see your heart, God, and to love justice? So we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Everybody loves a hypocrite, don't they? We all probably universally hate hypocrisy, and sometimes we can look at the absurdity and laugh at it, right? Like a cartoon, like this a Garfield cartoon, don't you know, pointing at people is impolite? Or maybe we hear stories that are just ridiculous and we kind of roll our eyes. Here's one from a Chinese restaurant owner as they were taking a customer's order. Customer says, and make sure the, none of the items have MSG in it, that stuff kills you. To which he replied, some of our items are made with MSG as a flavor enhancer, but I can ask the kitchen if they can leave that out for you. Good. I don't want any artificial chemicals in my body. Would you like a drink? Yes, a Diet Coke, please. (laughs) No chemicals in that at all. But, But sometimes hypocrisy moves beyond being funny or cute, and it just makes us angry, right? I mean, during COVID, social media was stocked full of images and videos of politicians who passed mask mandates, but then didn't actually follow their own mask mandates, right? And it just enraged many of us. But often the worst kind of hypocrisy is the religious kind, isn't it? This kind not only makes us mad, it makes us weep and grieve deeply. The pastor who preaches on Sunday morning with incredible eloquence, but then we find out he's a total jerk to the staff. The woman who talks about biblical marriage in all of her campaign speeches while simultaneously cheating on her husband and getting divorced. The husband who is super engaged in Bible study and never misses a Sunday morning, but we come to find out that he is verbally and emotionally abusive at home, never encouraging his wife or kids verbally tearing them down with his cutting words. The whole house walks on eggshells because of his volatile temper. Or what about this? In the Old Testament, Israel, God's people, the ones who cried out to God for deliverance from Pharaoh's brutal opposition and oppression, a few years later, become what they hated. See, a few years in their own land, and they... Turn from the ones who are oppressed into the oppressors. The people that God has specifically called out to live in such a way to reveal who he is to the surrounding nations now are making him look really, really bad. Rather than fulfilling the promise that God made to Abraham to bless all of the other families of the earth by living completely differently and reflecting the character of Yahweh, their God, they become just as corrupt as the surrounding nations That they were to witness to. All the while, they are very religious, but they are not righteous. They offer sacrifices and celebrate feasts while simultaneously oppressing the poor and the vulnerable and committing all kinds of other heinous sin. That's what the prophet Amos was called by God to speak to. Here's a quick intro video on the book of Amos.
1: The book of Amos was written by Amos between 760 and 753 BC. He was a simple shepherd from Judah called by God to confront the wickedness of Israel. At this time, the northern nation of Israel is gaining prosperity at the expense and enslavement of the poor, blind to their own history of slavery in Egypt. Despite being in their most prosperous state since the time of King Solomon, their hearts are far from pursuing God. In his unfailing justice, God calls Amos to deliver a warning against Israel's idolatry, hypocrisy, and oppression of the poor, announcing his coming judgment. Amos goes on to convey God's promise of restoration when he will bring back the remnant of his people and ultimately restore their souls, never uprooting them again.
0: Imagine being Amos, a simple shepherd in Judah, You live in the small village of Tekoa, just south of Jerusalem, in the southern kingdom of Judah. And then one day, Yahweh shows up and calls you to travel to the northern kingdom of Israel, the prosperous but wicked kingdom of Israel, where he tells you to preach a message of judgment against them and against Jeroboam II for their wickedness and their religious hypocrisy. This is Amos' story. In chapter 7, verses 14 and 15, he relays, Then Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet, nor a prophet's son, but I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. So he was a shepherd and a farmer. He watched sheep, and he took care of sycamore trees so that he could harvest the figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go prophesy to my people Israel. And so he goes to the northern kingdom of Israel and he begins his prophetic ministry by calling out the sins, not of Israel, but of all of the surrounding nations of Israel. If you read chapter 1 and chapter 2, there is a familiar cadence that you pick up very quickly. It begins, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke punishment. And then it lists out their specific sins and the certainty of God's judgment coming with fire. And then it moves on from Damascus and uses the same exact template and speaks to the people of Gaza, the people of Tyre, the people of Edom, the people of the Ammonites, the Moabites, the people of Judah. And you can probably see King Jeroboam II listening to this thinking, yeah, get them, Yahweh. Get them. All the people around us that are a great threat to us. But then in chapter 2, verse 6, the cadence turns to Israel. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. And then he lists their specific sins. And their specific sins are longer than the sins of all of the other nations that were named. Outpacing them by filling up the rest of the chapter, not just a couple verses. And if you're to look at that map, you see how there's kind of concentric circles of judgment getting closer and closer to the center of the bullseye, which is Israel, the northern kingdom. And this is Amos' task. Even though things are economically prosperous in Israel because of the relative peace and stability under Jeroboam II, in fact, it's more prosperous than any other time other than Solomon, we see that even in the midst of that prosperity, the nation is rotten to the core. They had become the very people that they needed to be delivered from a few hundred years ago. And so Amos, even though the final words of Amos that Kelsey read earlier at the beginning of the service are words of promise, of restoration, and hope, the primarily, primary focus of Amos is pronouncing judgment through poetry and prophecies and denouncements of specific acts. For our time together, we're going to be in Amos chapter 5, looking at verses 18 to 27. Will you turn with me? It'll also be up here on the screen. Amos 5, starting in verse 18. He writes, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord! Why would you have, why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light, as if man fled from a lion and a bear met him. Or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall, and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness, and not light, and gloom with no brightness in it? I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps. I will not listen, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Did you bring to me sacrifices and offerings during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You shall take up Sikuth, your king and Cayun your star god your images that you made for yourself and I will send you into exile beyond Damascus says the Lord whose name is the God of Hosts So this particular section of scripture begins and ends with the certainty of God's judgment and the middle is the reason why verses 18 to 20 Tell the Israelites that the day of the Lord is not a day that they are to look forward to. The day of the Lord is not the day where they will be elevated above all of the other nations in final victory, but rather it will be the moment when God's judgment falls on them for their sin. Like running away from a lion only to run into a bear. Or like going home to relax and leaning back and being bitten by a serpent or a snake. Where you thought you were safe, you actually ran into a worse judgment. Verses 25, 26, and 27, he says, Because of your idolatry, the judgment will not only be certain, but it will include being exiled from the land that I promised to give you. I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord. And so the question in our minds is, why, God? Why are you going to bring down this judgment? And that's the heart of this section of Scripture. In verses 21 to 24, it's because the people of Israel were religious, but they were not righteous. There was lots of religious activities going on. There were many sacrifices being offered, many feasts and solemn assemblies, many songs being sung and written. But God says, I hate, I despise your feasts, I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me this noise of your songs to the melody of your harps. I will not listen. Why does God hate their religious activities and rituals? Because they are religious without living righteously. It's all a show to them, isn't it? It's disconnected from their everyday lives. See, here's a taste of what they're doing in Amos chapter 2, verse 6. He says, They sell honorable people for silver and poor people for a pair of sandals. They trample helpless people in the dust and shove the oppressed out of the way. Both father and son sleep with the same woman, corrupting my holy name. At their religious festivals, they lounge in clothing, their debtors put up as security. In the house of their gods, they drink wine brought or bought with unjust fines in chapter 4 verse 1 hear this word you cows of Bashan on Mount Samaria he tells the, he calls the women a bunch of cows you women who oppress the poor and crush the needy and say to your husbands bring us some drinks or again in chapter 5 verse 11 therefore because you trample on the poor and you exact taxes of grain from them you have built houses of hewn stone but you shall not dwell in them you have planted pleasant vineyards but you shall not drink Their wine, yes, there's sexual immorality going on that we read about, yes, there is idolatry and false worship of other gods taking place, but the theme that Amos goes back to over and over and over again in his prophecy is the economic oppression of the rich over the poor, which makes a rather conservative-leaning church start to squirm in their seats a little bit, doesn't it? See, he says the rich have grown fat off of the backs of the poor. They are exploiting them and forcing their own people into economic slavery. They sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, we read. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. Get this, the very religious festivals where they are lounging they are lounging in clothing, clothing stolen from people they lent money to. They drink wine bought with unjust fines that have been levied against those who have no voice to oppose them. And in all of this, God is not impressed. Because he doesn't just want religious ritual, he wants their hearts He wants them to do justice and to live righteously. He wants their lives to demonstrate to each other and to the watching nations what He's actually like. He wants them to care for the vulnerable and the poor in their midst and act generously toward one another rather than exploiting one another. And their response God, don't you like all of our sacrifices? Don't you like all of our songs? Don't you like all of our feasts? They respond to God's call for justice and righteousness with religiosity and religious ritual. But God says in verse 24 what he wants. Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Now that verse might be jogged into your memory either because you heard a song written about it or because Martin Luther King in his famous I Have a Dream speech quoted that exact verse that we as a country would live up to our high ideals to embody justice to live righteously to care about the poor among us and give every opportunity to people to succeed to judge people on the content of their character not the color of their skin were the famous words he says i have a dream now in the old testament justice and righteousness are two interconnected ideas, like two sides of the same coin. In fact, in the New Testament, it's the exact same word. It's one word. But in the Old Testament, the word for justice is mishpat. It means, according to Dr. Tim Keller, giving people their due, whether that was punishment or protection or care. It's giving people what they deserve or giving people their due. Righteousness, tzaddik, means to live righteously before God, to live justly, to to live in light of that, to not only obey, but to bring your life into alignment with justice, with peace, with shalom. God had already warned the northern kingdom of Israel. He had given them every opportunity to turn back and to turn to him. We read in chapter 4 that he sends many judgments Many eye-opening moments for them to kind of awaken and turn back to the Lord. But five times this phrase is uttered, yet you did not return to me. Though God gave them a taste of the coming judgment, though God warned them for their religious hypocrisy, they didn't listen and they didn't turn back. In fact, his warnings were ignored and the kingdom's overall prosperity was interpreted by the religious and the economic leaders as God's blessing to them. God will have none of it. Rather, he condemns them in Amos chapter 5, or 7. Oh, you who turn justice to wormwood and cast down righteousness to the earth. You see those things linked again? He says, you don't care about justice. You don't live rightly. And so I hate your religion. Now, it's hard to read prophets like Amos and not immediately begin thinking about Jesus, isn't it? And the religious hypocrisy that he dealt with in his day. His dealings with those who were religious but that were not righteous. The Pharisees whose strict adherence to the laws of God were twisted and obscured in such a way where the simple call to love their neighbor was largely ignored as they pursued religion. Now, any time that we talk about injustice and doing justice, particularly when economic realities are involved... We start to squirm a little bit, right? The elephant in the room is, who's justice? What do you mean by justice? See, a lot is being said today about justice that has very little to do with a biblical understanding of justice. See, based on where lines have often been drawn politically, we think of justice and morality in different buckets. And it seems those who care most deeply for morality have all but punted on justice, And all who seem to care so deeply for justice have completely punted on any and all morality. Do you guys feel this? I feel it all the time. And so we have two sides, a two-party system that really struggles to help us to live justly in any way. From a biblical standpoint, make no mistake, God cares whether or not you lie or covet or steal or who you have sex with. But God also cares what you do with your money and your resources, whether or not you gain it fairly, and when you have it, how you steward it, either justly or unjustly. Here's the point that I really want you to get. When talking about, when thinking about justice, it's so important that we allow the scriptures to both define and inform our understanding of what God longs for with justice, Now, who do we seek justice for? Do we seek justice for all or only for those who deserve it? See, this tends to be debated ad nauseum among us. But biblically speaking, simply being a human being created in the image and the likeness of God is just cause for you to be treated justly. If you look carefully at the Old Testament law, it was those who were most vulnerable and weak that were to be given justice as their due. They were the ones that were to thrive and flourish in a just society. Now, imagine if our rubric for justice and mercy was applied to ourselves. Imagine if God showed mercy only to those of us who deserved it. You would have the very opposite of the gospel, would you not? Because at the heart of, of the Christian message is the reality that we do not get what we deserved. We get what we don't deserve, and yet we often spend all of our time debating on whether or not someone deserves it. Now, you're like, all right, Pastor Kyle, you're dealing with big generalities. The minute you begin walking down this path of actually trying to do justice, you realize it gets complex really quickly, doesn't it? For instance, if you drink coffee that was grown and harvested by companies that essentially practice modern day slavery. Are you in sin? Well, what if you didn't know about it? How complicit are you in that? Or if your $5 shirt is $5 because it was sewn by a teenage girl in Malaysia working in a sweatshop, does your purchase make you complicit in that injustice? Or if you live in luxury, while those in the same church family that you live in struggle deeply with homelessness and giving enough to eat, what does righteousness or justice demand of you? Well, it depends, Pastor, right? What's the cause of their homelessness? What have you already done for them? What what do you do if they aren't willing to work? Or what do you do if they aren't able to work? Those are different questions, aren't aren't they? Aren't willing to work versus aren't able to work? It gets complicated very quickly, doesn't it? Here's what God cares about most. Do you care about justice and mercy? Do you care? Do you care about living in in line with the things that you say that you believe? Do you want to live justly? (sighs) Hmm. Well, All you have to do is go down that little rabbit hole of scenarios a little bit, and you realize very quickly that the conclusion of Romans chapter 3 is spot on. There is no one righteous. No, not one. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In fact, some of us realize that maybe we've sinned in areas that we weren't even aware of before, None of us have lived righteously, always applying justice perfectly. Now, this is the spot in the sermon where we immediately jump to the good news of the gospel. Where Jesus comes, and he lives a truly righteous life, and he does so in our place. He dies as our substitute and rises in victory so that anyone who would humble themselves, acknowledging their sin acknowledging their lack of righteousness, and believing the good news of what he did, they can be counted as righteous in God's sight. They might be saved not because of our own goodness, but because of Jesus's. So that when I put my faith in Jesus, his resume actually transfers to me. And I'm judged on the basis of that. Now who wouldn't want to go into that job interview? With those kind of credentials? That sounds amazing. It is. We call it good news. But then the question becomes, as a follower of Jesus, as a disciple of Jesus, as one of God's children, how should I live in this broken world? How should I care about and pursue justice without driving myself crazy? See, if you do justice, in order to make yourself right with God, you will end up either discouraged and despairing if you fail, or puffed up with pride if you think you succeed. It all depends on you. And that's a shaky place to live. But if you believe in Jesus and then feel uh, if you believe in Jesus but then feel no compelling urge or desire to be involved in his kingdom work of bringing blessing and peace and justice into this world, you, you should actually rightly ask yourself, do I really know him? Do I actually know him? If the things that he cares about, I don't care about. See, Jesus' own brother was reflecting on this reality in James chapter 2, starting in verse 14. It's from the New Living Translation. What good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, but don't show it by your actions? Can that kind of faith save anyone? Suppose you see a brother or sister who has no food or clothing, and you say, Goodbye and have a good day, stay warm and eat well. But then you don't give the person any food or clothing. What good does that do? So you see, faith by itself isn't enough. Unless it produces good deeds, it is dead and useless. Now someone may argue, some people have faith, others have good deeds. But I say, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? I will show you my faith by my good deeds. You say you have faith. You believe that there is one God. Good for you. Even the demons believe this. And they tremble in terror. How foolish. Can't you see that faith without good deeds is useless. Now, James is not suggesting, and neither am I, that somehow our righteous deeds save us. That's the opposite of the good news. He's simply saying that if you don't care at all about the things that are close to God's heart, you may not actually know him. Do you really have the kind of faith that moves beyond mere intellectual affirmation to saving trust and love? Because you know what? Even the demons can affirm what is true. They just hate it. Human religion that doesn't produce righteousness is not only hypocritical, it is ugly, and it is destructive. It was ugly in Amos' day, and it's still as ugly today. So the question that I want us to wrestle with with the remainder of our time is, how do I live justly? How do I live righteously in this world? How do I do justice in the complexity that is the modern world? Now, that's a great question. And to drill down into it too much into specifics, we can really easily get into the error of legalism or religiosity, turning our right deeds or good things into a new way of earning our way with God. We don't do that. But there are some things, as we wrestle with, that we Maybe can suggest about our lives. First, are there those who are currently being oppressed and silenced that you could befriend and use your voice for? Now, this doesn't mean that you agree with them on everything, but you see the dignity and the humanity in them, and you don't want them to be mistreated. Now, in this, you can't fight every battle or take on every issue God's not asking you to. But is there one that's near and dear to your heart that's also close to God's heart? Can you use your voice for that? Now, can I just say, can you use your voice for that, not primarily leaning on social media? Because I don't actually think that's very effective. It's amazing how when we think about justice, we immediately jump to advocacy. And that's good and right. We should use the power that we have for those who are most vulnerable. We should use our voice, but we should also use our hands and our feet and our minds. Second, could you be a little more discerning in your purchases I'm not saying that you have to research every little thing that you buy, but maybe ask the question, why is this thing only a dollar? If I'm not paying for it, who is? I'm not saying that everybody needs to like dive into full-blown minimalism, but maybe we could move just a step in that direction. Think about how many of the things that you buy that you don't really need. That don't really add much discernible value to your life, maybe they just complicate it more and more and more. Here's the truth you cannot buy happiness. You can't consume your way to peace. That's the error of consumerism, which is the air that we breathe. It's the air that our very culture is built upon, and, and it's subtle. And it's reached its tentacles into every one of our hearts. It has. That new iPhone will not make you happy. It won't give you peace. The new outfit will go out of style sooner than you think. The car that you buy will eventually rust and break down. Why on earth would we store up treasures for ourselves on earth? Sounds a lot like Jesus, doesn't it? You cannot spend your way to happiness, but that's a whole sermon for another day. We'll pick that up maybe around Christmas time again. I'm not asking you to Do all, like, a doctoral-level amount of research before you buy something. I'm just asking that, I'm just trying to help you realize that the way that we live right now is different than it's ever been. The things that we have access to and the things that we think that we need or the things that are normal are not normal if you look at the history of the world. And you know what? By and large, we're less happy That might tell us something. So let's be a little bit more discerning in our purchases. Now, third, this is where we get really good. Live generously. If there are those in your life and circle of influence that are in need or simply worse off than you are, is there a way that you can be a blessing to them or help them out? Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47, give us the first picture of the early church. The first people who responded to the first Christian gospel message. And this is how they live. Let me just read it for you, and hopefully it inspires you. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. So they're doing deeply religious things. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, I don't know any Christian who, when you hear those words, doesn't have this deep longing in you to be like, I want to be part of something like that. I want to be part of a people like that, and then that usually follows up with a sense of disillusionment when we look at our church and we're like, and we're not. We're not anywhere near that, and I know we can push back and forth and say, well, you know, is that voluntary communism, and that never works, and and, like, here's the thing, like, there were some very real economic issues just a generation later when the rest of the church had to, like, raise money and, like, bail them out, and there were some... Extenuating circumstances going on as all these people had traveled to Jerusalem for a feast and then had to stay with no job and no place to stay. It's not exactly the same as our lives, and yet there's something about that picture where people are like, it's not mine, it's God's. And if He wants to allocate it here, then He is more than welcome to allocate it here. And we're going to live like family, actually meeting each other's needs. It's a beautiful picture of living justly. But notice how it's interconnected and interwoven with relationships. Many of you know I was on sabbatical this last summer. Two things that God just hit me square in the eyes with over sabbatical that that I think we as a church need to grow in. The first one is corporate prayer and expecting the Spirit of God to move and work in our midst. And the second one is ministry of mercy. Loving and caring for the least of these in our world and in our community. I think there's a lot of room to grow here. Now, here's the thing I think this is an incredibly generous church with your money, but we've gotten less and less generous with our time, with our relationships. And I don't know if that's a response to COVID, a response to being overly busy and all of those things, but to like actually take our lives and serve, to make room in our lives for people that are not like us, people that are sometimes draining, people that need a lot of help and a lot of coaching, and sometimes a lot of assistance. We've started distancing ourselves from that. One of the reasons why we're in Lincoln Park is because even though many people live pretty well off, we never wanted to be a suburban church that was disconnected from need. That's why one of the reasons we were contemplating or are contemplating moving downtown because need doesn't scare us. We're Christians. It's not ours. My life is not my own. My money is not my own. My time is not my own. I just steward it to make much of God. And yet, it's not as simple as just throwing money at things, is it? Anybody who's tried to do even just a little bit of justice knows this, that money doesn't fix it. It's part of the problem, it's part of the challenge, but it doesn't fix the thing. So here, can I just share with you how we do our benevolence, our benevolence policy, our way of helping people in our family? See, we have a bunch of money that's set aside to meet real needs, because the reality is sometimes we need it, and some of us struggle deeply But do you know there's not just a big pool of money that you get to access? Do you know how we give that money? We give it through the context of our city groups. We give it through the people who know you that are involved in your life day in and day out. And so when we see or know of a need, the city group often starts that process. They initiate kind of passing the hat and say, who can help meet that need? And you know what our benevolence policy does? Matches it. So that it's not given through the church as this big, nameless, faceless organization. It's given through people in your lives that love you and that care about you. Now, if there's city groups that have some economic challenges, it's not like we have these policies like written in stone. We'll we'll come alongside and help. But here's the thing. We want to help, but we want to do so relationally. Because when we give money, often there are more things going on than we can just see. For instance, do you know anybody? Do you have anybody in your life that's ever struggled with addiction, chemical dependency, alcoholism? What's the last thing they need? Cash. It just prolongs it. They might need money for housing, but they also need some relationships and some accountability They probably also need some counseling so that they can figure out why am I trying to medicate my pain and comfort myself with that rather than running to the Lord. See, most addictions start with pain that they don't know how to treat. They don't know how to deal with. We don't know how to deal with. We don't know how to apply the gospel to that particular wound in our life. And so we run to the only thing that can numb us. See, if we're actually committed to biblical justice, that means that we embrace the whole of people and we realize that there's a lot of complexities there. And here's the the thing. We're going to get it wrong sometime. We're going to give money to someone sometime and it's not going to be helpful. But I'd much rather miss there occasionally than never be moved to compassion. Never demonstrate and show the mercy of God. How else can we live generously? See, our city groups not only meet needs financially, they also serve together. It's kind of the way that we live out that body life that we see in Acts chapter two. In fact, once a month, our city groups try to set aside a night either to throw a party and invite all of our friends that are close to us but far from God, or where we get together and we start to serve together. Things like the Saturday meal or celebrate recovery or volunteering at the Boys and Girls Club, or a campus ministry, or the Union Gospel Mission downtown, or the Hope Center a couple blocks away, or the Duluth Harbor Mission, or any number of different organizations that are doing good in our community, just not necessarily pointing to Jesus. See, doing justice, loving mercy, is more than just giving money. It is that. It's giving yourself It's caring. It's realizing. Can I I tell you the biggest aha moment for me when it came to mercy and justice? See, I grew up in a very functional home with loving parents. God has given me a very sharp mind. I went to college and school. And when I used to think about poor people or I used to think about people in need, I used to just put myself in in their situation and think, why do they need help? They should be able to figure it out. But what I didn't realize is that I was importing my own background, my own skill set, my own support network. And the reality is, I probably could pull out of that. But guys, I can't tell you how many things I have in my life that I didn't earn, that I didn't have any say in whatsoever. I'm playing a hand that is radically different than many people. And so are you. And that shouldn't move you to pride. It shouldn't move you to compassion. It shouldn't make you feel guilty, but rather you should long for everybody to have some of the things that you had. That's living in a just society. That's what we should care about. And you know what? It's going to be complex. It's going to be messy. But can we stop punting on this particular thing? Finally, one of the best ways to move toward justice, who can you extend friendship to that is not like you? You don't have to overthink this. Who's different than you economically, racially, educationally, maybe age-wise, older or younger than you? What would it be like to be genuine friends with them, to learn from them, to encourage them, and maybe even help them out with some of the things that God has blessed you with? Now, it used to be that churches were ripped on as being the most monolithic gatherings of the week in a particular city, where everyone's the same age and ethnicity and has the same educational background and is economically the same and politically the same. I would actually like to suggest to you that your church gathering is one of the most diverse group of people that you hang out with on a weekend and week out basis, where you actually talk about things that matter. Now, to be sure, we believe in and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for our salvation. The gospel has radically transformed our lives. But where else do you hang out with people of diverse age and economic background and educational background and racial background and political affiliation where you actually hang out and have meaningful interactions in a respectful way? That's just not happening in our world, but it happens here. You want to know why COVID was so hard for a lot of us? We realize that the people that we worship Jesus with are not all the same. And they don't all think like you. And they love Jesus deeply. And a lot of you have no categories for that. What would it look like for you to befriend someone, genuine relationship with someone who is not like you? So you want to do justice? Use your voice for others. Be discerning in the purchases you make and cut back. Live generously. Befriend those who are not like you. Dive into this and you will soon realize that there is so much more that we could do. Now every week when we send you out as a church, we send you out to declare the good news of the gospel, to delight in relationship with God because of the good news of the gospel. But we also send you to go and display the difference that the gospel makes in your life. See, when you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are transferred into a new kingdom, the kingdom of God. And in this kingdom, we are called to live differently as we obey our king named Jesus. Not to earn our place, but because we love the king. And because he invites us to live life the way that it was meant to be lived. What we can so clearly learn from the book of Amos is this truth, God is not impressed with our religious gatherings if we keep them separated from an entire life of allegiance to him. We can sing new songs, we can celebrate festivals, we can do religious things, but if we do not care about justice and righteousness, we are hypocrites and we give God a bad name in this world. It's not that we should devalue our religious gatherings, God never does, he just wants them to be connected to the rest of our lives. Some of you guys are thinking, Pastor Kyle, I'm not sure I have it in me to do that kind of life. Well, here's the good news. When you put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit comes into your life, empowering you to live a wholly different kind of life. You see, we live in a completely different reality than the Old Testament people of God did. What's the difference? The Spirit the spirit of God comes into our life and gives us a new power to live out this kingdom reality so that they're not just commands that God gives, they're commands that we're empowered to do. And that, my friends, is beautiful. I'll close with a word from another prophet, Micah chapter 6 verse 8. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Would you pray with me? God, thank you for this call to just and righteous living. God, we know that our hearts are so prone to turn to religion, to think that we somehow earn our place with you, to think that we somehow are impressing you with our kind deeds, rather than trusting in you, Jesus, for our salvation and living out your ethics and the things that are close to your heart because we love you. God, would you protect us from that while also convicting us so that we might live more just and righteous lives as we display to a watching world what you're like. Help us to do that faithfully and joyfully, God. In Jesus' name, amen.